it is a positive spin. I mean, you must know that the universe conspires for your happiness. Mm. Just have to look at it in the correct angle, mm. right? Because any difficulties thrown your way is meant to just make you stronger and mm. kind of think things differently. Yeah. That's that. Absolutely. Right? That is that. Is that. So that's wow. You have to look at it. I didn't always think that way, but I've, I've learned to think that way. So I have a very, I have a very odd background in, in that sense, right? Because being Cameroonian in my mind has been different than being African-American mm. because in my mind, there was never a race issue. I, mm. I didn't realize it was a race issue or a race thing until I much later, mm. you know, because in Cameroon, it's just, it's just African. Yeah. There's, there's yeah. nothing else. You yeah. Know? Um, and I went to college in Bridgeport in a very international schools. I would say more than 60 of the students were international. Wow. We had lots of Bulgarians and Russian and Middle Eastern, lots of Middle Eastern, mm -hmm. and lots of like Koreans, you know, some Africans. So it was, a, it, was, it was a very mixed college where we were mostly all, most kids on campus were. were. Welcome to Show Your Receipts, where we believe if you can see it, you can be it. Receipts are evidence or proof that something has occurred, our guests are evidence that Black excellence is alive and well. They will be sharing their receipts on how they've been able to accomplish so much in their life. I'm your host, Tony Jackson. Let's get started. Welcome to Show Your Receipts, where we believe if you can see it, you can be it. Receipts are evidence or proof that something has occurred. Today's guest is evidence that Black excellence is alive and well. I'm your host, Tony Jackson, and we are excited for this episode today. We have a very, very special guest. I'm going to read off some of her stats, as I like to call it. I literally had to edit this because it was so much cool stuff. I had to like pick out the top 10 or 15 things. So I'm just going to get going. So first, BS in biology and a minor in mathematics from the University of Bridgeport. She graduated summa cum laude. Uh, she has a doctor of medicine from St. Louis University, where she graduated cum laude. She did her general surgery internship at Thomas Jefferson Hospital in Philadelphia. She did her neurosurgeon residency at Thomas Jefferson Hospital in Philadelphia. She did her enfolded endoscop endoscopic fellowship at Thomas Jefferson in Philadelphia. She did her skull-based oncology fellowship at Thomas Jefferson in Philadelphia. She's the department chair head of surgery at PO Systems in Marquette. She's the department chair of surgery at UPO Systems in Marquette. She's the clinical lab director at Upper Michigan Brain Tumor Center. She was a collegiate All-American uh, all scholar. She's a mother of three, an incredible person, a person I like to call a good friend of mine, Dr. Sonia Gashwin. Sonia, thank you. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. It is exciting to be here. I have been looking forward to this. And I thank you for taking the time to be here. And so let's kind of just dive right into it because I literally just said some things that I don't even know what I was saying. I was describing things that you did that I'm not even sure. And I'm sure it's a lot of people who may be watching this who are wondering, what exactly is a neurosurgeon? So can you explain to, to me and some of our viewers yeah. what a neurosurgeon is and what they do? So a neurosurgeon just referred to a surgeon of any kind of like neural axis. So it's brain surgery, it's neck surgery, it's back surgery, it's nerve surgery in general. So we take care of like head injuries, you know, car accidents, broken backs, if you fall. We take care of like lumbar disgeneration, like chronic back pain, neck pain, nerve pain, and call, you name it. Anything to do with nerves and brains we take care of. Wow, that is, that is amazing. So... You name so many different things. What does a, a normal day look like for a neurosurgeon? Like when you're walking into the hospital, what do you see? Well, the reality of medicine is that there's, there's two facets, right? There's a part of like taking care of the patients, of seeing them, talking to them, evaluating them. And for a surgeon, there's a part of actually doing the surgery. So my week is split in like, like three different things. There is the clinic week where I'm actually in the clinic. Like today, I was kind of seeing patients, talking to them, seeing what's going on with them, getting to know them, and they different problems. Um, on other days, I tend to do surgery. So I come in and it's four all day. You get in there and you're cutting in and you're taking tumors out, fixing, looking back, things like that. 
And the third day is kind of like your admin day. You need to kind of like review your charts, do the typical things and notes and documentation and admin, you know, to kind of like regroup everything and run your practice. That is amazing. So let's dig into that surgical part that, you know, you just kind of like, yeah, it's a go in and do surgery. It's no big deal. What does that look like? Like, is it like what we picture on TV? Like, you know, I know you you scrub in and you do all of that stuff, but like, what exactly is that process? Are you nervous? Are you, what, what is that like? So, you know, that you read all those years of like this school and that's yeah. the next week. Yeah. I mean, the whole point is that you go through the training you need to have to perform the surgery. Mm-hmm. So when you are going in the OR, you are the team lead, you have your nurses, you have your techs, you have your assistant, they are all looking to you. Mm-hmm. So you're not nervous because you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You've trained for it, you know what you're doing, you know, so it's, it's more of like a moment to go in and to shine and take care of somebody, you know. So it's very empowering, it's very confident, it's very like hooray. But also there's also the pressure of knowing that this person's life is in your hand. So you also have to be on your A game and you have to lead to a team. So it's like all those feelings kind of all mixed together. But the thing about surgery is that you have the chance of fixing something, of making something better like by the work you do in that moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, how often you get to do that? Yeah. You know, you get to kind of like help a person, save a life, save a brain, like just like, just fight what you do. So it is, it is awesome. I mean, that's why they do surgeries, right? The surgeons do that for that instant, like, I can help you, I can fix this, I can get you better. Wow. That is amazing. And so I've heard about some of these miraculous improvements that uh, people can get from, you know, being treated by a neurosurgeon and having surgery. You know, and obviously we don't want you to divulge names or anything, but can you share like maybe a particular experience or surgery that you've done, like how the patient came in and then after you doing the surgery, what was the end result of that? So I have a few of those stories actually. Um, and the truth is that they can go very great or they may not go great. Mm-hmm. Great is what you kind of strive for. Mm-hmm. A couple of them actually stick with me. I had a young man that was involved in an unfortunate accident. He fell off. The bike and mm. ran over the railing, mountain biking, yay, mountain biking, um, and broke his neck. Um, mm. Like pretty much dislocated his neck. And when he did that, he kind of pinched his spinal cord and he was severely compressed. Mm. So he came in, he wasn't able to feel on his hand or feel his feet. So what I had to do, I had to do a two-part surgery going in front of his neck to kind of try to realign it and go in the back to add some instrumentation like screws to pull the bones together. And at first, he, he, when he woke up, he still could not move, but with time, the doctor began to feel his fingers, feel his toes, and then he was able to like stand and he was able to walk, wow. which is really, really amazing, you know? And that's one. Another one I remember also is um, to do with a car accident. A patient that came in was in a car accident and cracked her skull, had a pretty huge, like bleeding on the brain and whatnot. And that's gonna happen with those TB things that you see where you have to drill holes. Yeah, yeah. So it's not quite like that. Yeah. It's a bit more invasive because mm-hmm. what we actually have to do in those cases is we have to open up the whole half of the head, you know, and you kind of like remove the whole skull, the whole skull itself on that half side, take the blood out, clean everything out, and kind of like reattach everything together. Those are like your three in surgeries that you kind of you get you get called in like pre um this happened by accident, patient could and you run in there, you do your surgery there for like three, four hours, and then you get better. That's pretty awesome. Wow. So, Ben, you just hit a couple of things. First of all, I didn't realize my biking could be that dangerous. Mountain biking can definitely be that dangerous. Wow. So, there's so many questions I have, even from what you just said. Do the surgeries that you do and the people you treat cause you to live your life more cautiously? Like, are you like... <laughs> You're seeing so many different things that you're like, nope, not doing that. Yep. I have, I will have a trampoline at my house and I will never have one. My kids know not to ever jump on a trampoline. You know, those little somersaulty do, you can't easily break your neck. It's silly. Wow. Yeah. No diving in shallow water or shallow pools. Absolutely not. Mm. No biking or doing anything without helmets mm. and without a proper like bracing. Yeah. No motorcycles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I mean, the, the thing is that you can get injured in so many different ways, but right. you can avoid like the, the obvious things just in house. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And so it's so crazy. You were talking about like, yeah, just, you know, take off the sign of your skull. And don't be, this is a dumb question, but I have to ask it. Like, 
you don't ever get like squeamish or like you can't get you're the surgeon how are you gonna get squeamish yeah i guess that's the reason why i could have never been a surgeon so do you because it almost seems like a do you remember the first time that you ever either participated because i'm sure you probably watched one of those first were you you remember the first time that you saw them like take a part of somebody's skull you're actually looking at a human brain like what was that but that's an interesting question that you just asked because when i was growing up i was planning on becoming a cardiothoracic surgeon mm -hmm. you know i had read about like heart transplant and i had to serve at a drug up blood that was saved and i was like from here heart surgeon you know that was my that was my thing mm -hmm. uh, well i got into medical school though and i had to do like a shadowing rotation that field was filled there was no spot to like in predatory surgery so i had to go into pick a different specialties and when I got to the board, neurosurgery was the only one that was nobody had picked out. Yeah, you know? um, and I asked around, like, how could we use all neurosurgery? Like, what's up with that one? You know, and they told me, oh my God, it's the hardest rotation. It's the most difficult. It'd be at 6 a.m. in the morning, and you know, it's so difficult. It's so hard. And I was like, you know what? That sounds like me. I always go for the first stuff, you know. Um, so I went to the rotation and I signed up. The first day I got there, they were doing a brain aneurysm which is like, it's like an artery that dilates and kind of converts into your head and then this would be, it can kill you least and you can leave that happens. So in that surgery, they had to open up a skull and kind of go to them and clip the aneurysm. And so that was my first time in any OR before. Mm -hmm. um, they got the patient set up, they kind of went, did the work. When they opened up the skull and they kind of opened up the dura, which is the covering of the brain, and I saw the brain, and it was kind of like beating, you know, because if the, the brain beats with your heart. I did not know that. You know, it was almost like hypnotizing. I was like, wow, that is so beautiful. Wow. I want to look at this <laughs> again you you and knew. again and again. It was just like, this is so beautiful. And then the surgery that he did was so delicate and so, it was mesmerizing. And I was like, I guess this is it for me. I'm not. I'm not doing anything else. You know, I'm like this is this is my field. Wow. And it was it was love at birth. Wow. You fell in love with the brain. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. I got some more stuff I want to get to. You said I'm gonna get to it in a second. Okay. Okay. My next question is: According to Glassdoor, I'm not trying to get any business on you, but according to Glassdoor, they say that neurosurgeons make up. You know, they can make up to five hundred and fifty-nine thousand dollars or even more a year which puts people at a top 1%, maybe even higher income murders in America. Is this true? First, that's first question. Well, it is true. I mean, the, the range of your income is a function of where you work mm -hmm. and how far you work mm -hmm. um, and also how you prioritize your life. Mm -hmm. So there is a range. You can make as little as like 450 or over a million or two or who knows what. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And the main reason why I want to put that out there is because um, I know we got a lot of young people who will be watching this just to realize that there's huge opportunity in using your brain. This is like a double using your brain. She's right. using her brain, helping people's brain. But you have to be careful that you're dargling medicine for the money. Mm. I mean, that's like, that's, that, that. that's the bonus. But if that's what you're going in for, you're picking your bone field. Because mm. you can make money doing other things. Medicine is more about a personal passion. Absolutely. You know? The money is just a reward. It, it comes with a job, but it's not why you do the job. That's a great point. That's a great point. And this is interesting, though. It seems like the people who make the most money, it starts with the passion first. And then the, the, the money is the result of that passion. Okay. That's awesome. Okay. So let's go into, let's kind of go back a little bit. Okay. Let's go back and talk about this dream of becoming a doctor. Because you talked about when you had the, you were thinking thoracic surgery and then you kind of switched to neurosurgery. When did the dream, at what age did the dream pop into your mind that I want to be a doctor one day? I had awesome parents. I had awesome parents who had envisioned for their children, who believed that we could do anything we wanted to do, and who kind of like encouraged us and kind of like fostered us, you know. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Mm -hmm. But she had wanted to be in the medical field. You know, that had been her dream when she was growing up. Mm -hmm. And then she had six kids. Mm -hmm. Right. And then we know how that happens with having six kids. Yeah. 
So in their planning of our life, you know, they had kind of like figured, but I was an engineer by training. Mm -hmm. So his oldest son was an engineer. Mm -hmm. My oldest sister was supposed to be the accountant for the company, you know. Uh -huh. And then my mom said, can I please have this one? Can she be, can she follow my dreams? You know, and it was, that was how it started. Yeah. So when I was a kid, she'd be like, you know, you're going to be a doctor. Like most of you doctors, what are you going to do, you know? And I was like, okay, you know, as a kid, you don't really think about that. Right. But in my mind, <laughs> it was a seed of like, okay, I, I can be a doctor. You know, it was that seed I was already did advocate medical stuff. Um, when I was very young in the school, we do the, those like career fair events yeah. where like they, they have people that are coming to about the jobs and what's not. Yeah. Um, and I happened to kind of hear in passing about some of the older kids talk about what they had seen. And one mentioned a surgeon, you know, she's like, oh, I'm learning about surgery, you know, and that was not listening, and I also agree, but it's that about. And she says, well, you're getting to cut people and fix them. And I was like, what? You're getting to cut people and fix them? Now, I already had an obsession back then with, like, um, how do I say this? I used to catch frogs uh -huh. as a kid with my cousin, and it would become, like, how to go open and kind of see what's yeah. in it. Yeah. All that kind of weird, I was kind of, like, nerdy as a kid, yeah. in a sense. So, so I could do that for a living. I could kind of like have people at three picks up. And I was like, that kind of sounds cool for like, I'm doing medical stuff. I want to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so that's how we began, you know, and I began thinking, I'm going to be a surgeon when I grow up. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think of anything else. I wasn't considering any other options. So Mind, from the time I was like, maybe like eight or nine, it was like, I'm going to be a surgeon. So not even doctor. No, it, it was, was surgeon. surgeon. It was like, wow. it was like, I want to cut people for the Wow. That, you know? And as I was growing and reading books, I read this book about this young girl with like a heart problem, had a myopathy of some sort and having a heart transplant. And she had a heart transplant and she was saved and she had a wonderful life after And I'm like, ooh, I want to do heart transplant surgery. You know, I'm like, this sells like something that really interests me. So I was like, Going through my life thinking, heart surgery, heart transplant, that was, that was my new kind of like goal and not. It didn't. So, yeah. So besides your parents, let it by the way, shout out to Sonia's parents. That's amazing. Supporting yeah. them, at, supporting yeah. you at a young age. Besides your parents, were there any other people when we were young who were like uh, behind you or really encouraging you in your dream? So I feel like. One of the biggest impediment to a child's success is hearing that, oh, that's too hard, or you can't do it, or you're not smart enough. You know, like being kind of like brought down and kind of being put down. I want to feel like growing up, I did not have that experience. You know, for me, it was never a question of like, can you, you know, do that. Granted, again, my parents were very like pushy. Uh -huh. When I was, um, this may not be funny or not funny, but time I was in like second break or something like that so I grew up in Cameroon which is not like the US mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. school is very competitive you know mm -hmm. when there's a test they post the results they, they you know who's first second third you know who had what grade wow. everything is out in the open wow. you know and it's very competitive yeah and it was always a matter of like okay what's your score you know if I was first so if I was second he will be like, who's smarter than you in your class? Like, who beat you? Like, who did better than you did? You know, is that guilt of like, you know? Yeah. If I was first, he was like, what questions did you miss? You know? <laughs> you know, I, like, the, the work I did was like, never. Good enough. It was always like, yeah. what could you have done harder and better? And, you know, it's hard to grow up in that environment, you know? Um, but clearly paid to some extent. Yeah. So I think my, my parents were very pushy, plain mm -hmm. and nobody around us ever kind of told us that you couldn't. It was more of like, you're going to do this, you can do this. It was more like a, an expectation that you can achieve what is you know, set for you. Yeah. So. so do you feel like if your parents worked that way, do you think you would have still been able to become a neurosurgeon? Honestly, I don't think so. Maybe. Maybe, but the thing is, as a woman in Cameroon, like me being a woman already, I mean, that the, the expectations of my life will be different in different parents. Mm -hmm. It's more of an issue of like becoming a little white, mm -hmm. you know, like the, the encouragement that you get are not, are not the same necessarily. So I feel like my parents being the way they were, 
certainly help at the beginning to kind of like propulse me forward. Absolutely. So I would say for parents, I mean, we are supposed to be the catalyst for our children. Absolutely. It's never about like all you can, always do it. It's more like, okay, you know, like you know, nurture that, encourage them, make them feel like invincible, like you can do this. What do you want to do? Okay, sure. How do we make it happen type thing, you know? Yeah. Have been very like encouraging and finding that the things your kids are good at and kind of like rolling with that. I think it's very important. Absolutely. And so when you thought about becoming a surgeon, besides the fact that when you were a kid, besides the fact that your parents were encouraging you to do this, what did that represent to you? Was it just like, oh, this is like a cool career? Was it like, oh, I want to make my parents proud? Was it like, I just want to go out and help people and fix people? What was, what was that? What, what, what did that goal mean to you to become a surgeon? To be honest, I didn't have a clue. <laughs> I mean, I mean, as a kid, you don't have a clue, right? Because I think that growing up, it was more about the idea of achieving, right? Because I had been ingrained in me of like achieving. And I thought it would be something cool and fun and awesome to achieve. You know, I was asked to go be medical. Well, I might get you a cutting and people fixing them, you know, so I could achieve what I was expected to and also enjoy the achieving. And I had never seen a surgeon, met a surgeon, talked to a surgeon. You know, I had never, nobody in my family is in healthcare. You know, my, my dad is a first generation, like self-made person. He's the first to go to college in his family. You know, so it wasn't like I had been around people that were very educated or anything of that sort. So as a kid, it was really just about achieving. You know, I had been used to meet expectations, you know, and this was one thing I was always doing, mm-hmm. you know. And I don't think it became real until I began to have contacts with doctors and physicians and actually see what it was about, and I happened to actually read about it, mm. you know. And so this contact with doctors, was this in Canberra World or was this in the US? It was, only, it was actually in the US. It was well into my, my training because I went through my undergrad, I guess, I, I guess my first contact was an undergrad, actually. I volunteered at the hospital, mm-hmm. you know, so that was my first contact with healthcare mm-hmm. and stuff. And that was at Bridgeport? In Bridgeport, yeah. Okay. I volunteered in the ER. I wouldn't go down to the ER. I was doing some chart collection and whatnot. It's mm-hmm. okay. It was in surgery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was okay, you know, but yeah. So had you had experience with black African-American doctors up to that point, had you seen black surgeons and none? So I have a very, I have a very odd background in in that sense, right? Because being Cameroonian, in my mind, has been different than being African American. Mm. Because in my mind, there was never a race issue. I, I didn't realize it was a race issue or a race thing until like much later, mm. you know. Because in Cameroon, it's just it's just African. Yeah. There's yeah. nothing else. You yeah. Know? Um, and I went to college in Bridgeport in a very international schools. I would say more than 60 students were international. Wow. We had lots of Bulgarians and Russian and Middle Eastern, lots of Middle Eastern, mm-hmm. and lots of like Koreans, you know, some Africans. So it was, a, it, was, it was a very mixed college where we were mostly all, most kids on campus were, were international students. It was a very small private college, which was a great thing for me, I think, as a transition to the U.S. Yeah. So in college also, we were mostly foreigners and, and some Americans who, you know, I, I didn't see myself as a black anything. Yeah. I was just, you know, another international student. And then not. And then. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, because one of the taglines we use is, you know, we believe if you can be it, you can see it. Mm-hmm. And so when you were in, well, first of all, how old were you when you migrated to the U.S.? So... So it was, my, my path wasn't straight, and paths aren't supposed to always be straight. Right. Um, so apparently I was smart because I finished high school. I, I think I just turned 16 when I finished high school. I might At 16? You just I, turned 16? I think I might have skipped a couple of grades. I think I, I skipped, I don't know what the, what they would correspond in the U.S., but I skipped a couple of grades. So I finished at 16. Mm-hmm. And first, my parents sent me to Canada because my brother's since I gone to Canada just to do school. And then, that wasn't the best environment for me because mm-hmm. I got there. I was in an apartment with my brother and sister mm-hmm. for where two years and four years older than me. Mm-hmm. They apparently were not as motivated as I am because my sister was not always going to school. And I went yeah. there. I did one semester there at the university in, in a public university, 
And that, those were the worst, that was the worst year of my life. Wow. So it was the worst because I kind of lost my focus. Imagine you sent a 16-year-old to Canada with yeah. her 18- and 20-year-old brother yeah. with no parent supervision at, right. at all yeah. and, like, say, okay, here, go to this foreign country with foreign cultures and, like, everything is different and be real on your own. Mm-hmm. And that was terrible. Mm-hmm. That was the first time I got, like, bees and I got a fee, too. And just, Let's not talk about that. Oh, oh no. <laughs> Talking about it. But I kind of, like, got there and realized, oh, there's life. You know, oh, you can't hang out. Oh, you can go to the parties. Oh, you know, I, yeah. I'll, I, I, yeah. I'll have to go to class, really. And then I think, I think I kind of lost myself mm. for that semester. And when I got there also, I met with my, with my advisor in Canada. And he looked at me and says, you're not going to hit the medical school. Mm. He told me that. You know, I mean, in retrospect now, I can, I can, I can look at it differently, but as, as a student back then, I don't think I realized what was happening. Because you know, yeah. so the rate of offenders is like three percent for international students. There's no chance of you getting in. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do you can do chemistry if you want or something of that sort. So that was kind of like, oh, so I'm gonna get mental school. Okay, here, you know, I kind of like lost my drive for a little while, and I kind of got lost. You know, I had some friends, some people with the best company. You know, and I kind of like did crummy. And at the end of that semester, I wrote a letter to my dad. I was like, I guess I don't know what I'm doing. You know, this is not working. I'm not happy here. This, I kind of like wrote a very unhappy letter and whatnot. You know, and, and you could see based on my, my work, I mean, that, was, that, was, that was not me. Mm-hmm. So he made me come back to Cameroon at that point and sort of from scratch. So we found a company that then helped placed me in the right place, which was this university in the U.S., mm-hmm. you know. And so I, I, so I lost, I guess, a year between kind of going to Canada first and then kind of getting back to Cameroon and then coming to the U.S. Mm-hmm. So when I got to the university in Bridgeport with this new, like, okay, now we're going to do this. I can get medical school through the U.S. I can kind of get there for my dreams. I was like, okay, I'm getting a second chance here. So I kind of blew through college. Three years, I was taking 21 credits every semester. Wow. And eight in the summer, and that minor. And yeah, and I went from there. So wow, you're at University of Bridgeport. You're you're doing 21 credits a, a semester. Yeah. That's like two semesters in one you're squeezing in. Tell me, talk to me about that time. Those were interesting days. Because, you know, they say you, you're supposed to work hard and party hard. Yeah. Other thing, you know. So... I worked very, very, very hard, and I partied some. Because you have to have balance in your life, right? And I was hanging out with Russians, to be honest, <laughs> back in the day. But anyway, so I think it came down, everything comes down to having a vision, to having a dream. Mm-hmm. I think if you, if you know what your end goal is, every decision kind of lines up. Mm-hmm. Everything kind of makes sense, you know. My end goal was becoming a surgeon. Mm-hmm. Everything I was doing and was like, to become a surgeon, I had to get my credits, I had to finish my college, I had to get all A's, I finished with all A's. Mm. Actually, I almost got a B one, still another good there. <laughs> but I think once you have a direction, once you have a goal, everything becomes easy. And I think that's what's so important. So my goal was to finish up and make up for the year I lost. Mm-hmm. I'm really driven by that idea mm-hmm. to get the best score, to get things to medical school, you know, so mm-hmm. at each step, at each point, I was thinking, what's the next thing I had to accomplish? Mm-hmm. So in undergrad, medical school. In medical school, residency. Keep your eye on the train, you know. But yeah, but again, of course, keeping some balance. So I had some friends. I would hang out at a little parties as well and do that. But also keep in mind that the intention of the hanging out in the party is to keep you safe. It's a key to keep you balanced. Mm-hmm. But you cannot be unsafe to the point that you're compromising your goal, mm-hmm. you know. So the reason I'm cool is, well, kind of maybe cool, is because when I was in college, yes, I studied hard. You know, I pulled over things all the time with an Irish family. And it seems like that's not just something that you had to worry about in school. It probably kind of carries out through your entire path as a neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. Even now, you have three kids, you, you know, you have a husband, you're doing a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about how do you keep that balance mm-hmm. of 
you know, it's like, because I almost feel like it's like you're two different people to me. Yeah. It's like you're fun, Sonia, happy. But then I know that you're going to cutting open people's yeah. skulls and yeah. fixing their necks. Yeah. How do you maintain that balance? So, you know how they say balance is like 50-50 and that's total, that's not true, mm -hmm. right? Balance is not 50-50, we're appreciative, you know. So, I work most days from 6.30 to like 6.30 Most days are like 12-hour days for me. Yeah. And that's like five, six days a week, right? So I don't have a, I don't really have a work-life balance. Mm. The thing that I consider balance is that you have to prioritize what matters to you. And you have to be honest with yourself about what matters to you. Mm. And then you organize your life based on that. So in my case, my work is necessary for the people I take care of. And it's also my contributing to the world. That's what I get that ring to the world. That's how I can make things better for everybody else. So my work takes a very large amount of my time. Now, what that means is I have less time for normal things, you know. And what I do is I get help. Because you can't go through life without having the right support system. Right. So for things like personal family life, I am a housekeeper. Mm -hmm. It was great. She comes to my house every day. She makes all the beds, cooks all the counters, cleans mm -hmm. my house because I like a clean house and yeah. I don't have time to do it. Right? right. She does my laundry mm -hmm. and my ironing. Mm -hmm. So it's done and I adore about it. Mm -hmm. And I have a wonderful babysitter or nanny who takes care of my children. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, she has directions of what to do with the, you know, with the kids and stuff. Um, so when I'm home, with my kids, all I have to do is love them. Mm -hmm. I don't have to wash their clothes. I don't have to worry about thing, different things. I just can be with them and just love them and have all the time with them. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm on my days off, you know, I'm not worrying about doing the laundry. I'm not worrying mm -hmm. about, you know, I, I we hang out, we have quality time. The focus really when you have a little time is to make it purely quality time, Yeah, you know? So that's kind of how I create that balance for them. Mm -hmm. And also, there's time for myself because you have to have that time for yourself to become replenish yourself. So fortunately, I need very little sleep. I can function on like five hours mm -hmm. a night for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. So my personal time is when I um, go to the gym, which I go twice a week in the morning at 530. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But the thing is that my life would be, would seem extremely unbalanced to a normal person. Right. But for me, it works. No. Oh, and I have a very small group of friends. I have a very tight, I have like five good friends. Mm -hmm. You don't need to have 20 friends. Mm -hmm. Five good friends who are like my, my fortress. I can talk to them about anything, any point. I can open up to them. And you need to have that kind of like support system also. You know, I like to call them every day. And we can go for like a month with a text order, but when I need something, when I, you know, they are, they are there for me. So. So they are like, for maintenance, pretty awesome mm -hmm. friends. And we, we've gotten to the point where we kind of like trust and understand each other. So I, I'm not doing this alone, bottom line. It's like I have a very strong support system around me. And something important, I would say, for anyone who, who wants to achieve is that you have to surround yourself with the right people and the right support system. Mm -hmm. Because you cannot achieve alone. You know, you cannot achieve alone. Absolutely. Man, let me dig into that. You, 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 man, you're just dropping all kind of nuggets. So the team that you talked about, the right support system, you said that basically to be able to have a balance in your life, you need to have a team and a support system. First of all, how does a person know that someone is right in, in the right person for that support system? What are some signs that a person is the wrong person to be that close, tight, close, tight support system to be able to help them accomplish their goal or dream? So, that is tricky and difficult, right? Because I was very fortunate, all blessed, to have had the right parents because that's where it all started, yeah. right? And throughout my progression, I have had several other mentors that I kind of got to meet and that kind of like supported me and kind of brought me forward. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that as a young person, it's hard to sometimes figure out who is good. And who's not. Right, it's right. It's hard to figure it out. But again, I think if you find around, if you, if you invest your time on people who share and support your dreams, mm. you know, as opposed to somebody who's kind of like more like bringing you down of like, well, that sounds very hard. Are you sure you can do this? Mm. It's mostly like, 
let me see how I can help you do that. You know, something as simple as that. Mm. Like somebody who's more looking to like help you achieve, help you accomplish. And also somebody who shares your vision to want to make you succeed the way you see yourself succeeding, mm. not the way they see that mm. you should be doing, mm. which are two very different things, you know. And it's easy to get tempted by what the picture of success is supposed to be for you. Mm-hmm. You know, for many women, sometimes the success is like finding the right husband, you know, who will take care of you, who will make you comfortable, you know, and it's very tempting sometimes because you can get into with a partner who promise you all that and, you know, X, Y, Z. But if that's not what you want for yourself, then that's not my partner. Then all this, it will support your own personal desire to grow. So it, it can be difficult and it can be hard, you know, and, and same thing with friends. You know, if you have friends who are always that I'm trying to kind of like put you in situations where you know it's like, this is not good for me. I remember fun and great they are. They're just not the right friends. This is early. Or friends who are going to judge you or make you feel like they're small or make you feel they're not the right friends for you. Mm-hmm. However hard it is, I think you should cut it up. And the, the white people are out there, you know. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of reading, lots of personal about personal reading, you know, to kind of get to the point where I, I understand these things now because mm-hmm. I certainly had my heart broken a few times, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, flown that in a few times. Yeah. <laughs> you know. My, my, because I had an idea of what I thought my, my partner should be, mm-hmm. like, based on the kind of what you see on TV or what yeah. you see. But the reality is that it, that it may not be a case. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't have an answer except just look at things for what they are. Trust your gut. You know, mm-hmm. If something doesn't feel right or you're not getting that support, just it's not worth it in the long term. Just go for the next. Absolutely. Wow. So let's dig into kind of the road to becoming a doctor, the, you know, the undergrad, you kind of touched on that, the med yeah. school, yeah. the fellowships. Yeah. What what was your mentality when you were going through that gauntlet, yeah. that, you know, all of that, all those challenges? I would say I grew a lot because I went into this, as I mentioned, without really knowing what I was kind of going for. I was going to achieve. I wasn't really knowing what it truly meant. Mm-hmm. But I was always kind of like goal-oriented. I always kind of had an idea of like, okay, what's my next goal? What's my next challenge? And I think that having direction is key because having direction makes every decision much, much easier. Mm -hmm. So I think from the point I was an undergrad, the goal was getting to medical school. That means getting an excellent grade. That means doing research. That means working as a TA for the professor so I can get to put back myself later, you know. That means that when it came time to study for a test exam, you didn't do anything else. You drank coffee, stayed out all night and studied because that's what you had to do. And realizing that that moment of sacrifice that you take those days and weeks, whatever, is called real purpose, you know. So then medical school was not easy to get into at all because I was, a, I was an international student. Again, it's still a very poor low rate of acceptance. But again, if you realize that this is your life's dream mm-hmm. and you don't give yourself under options, you do everything you need to do to get there, mm-hmm. you know. So when I applied to medical schools, I only got like, I think, a handful of interviews, mm-hmm. you know. I went to the interviews, they told me, oh, you're a great student, but we got to prioritize American students, you know, we'll put your wait list, we will, yeah, yeah. And I was always go back and, and say, thank you very much for considering me can you please share with me like, what other things I could do to make myself better at applicant or candidate? So I always, the, you don't take no for an answer, right? You say, okay, so I thank you for sharing what you said, but how can I be better? How can, what can I do differently so that you would take me in, you know? Mm-hmm. So always asking that question and not taking no for an answer, mm-hmm. you know? I got in the first round, which is great, but mm-hmm. I, but I, but, I had a plan B, but if I didn't, you know, I had plan of kind of working at a lab, getting mm-hmm. more experience, getting more publications, you know. People get worried about losing a year and like, oh my God, I'm going to pick a different career. No, if that's into your dream, taking a year to bolster your application is mm-hmm. absolutely worth it. Whether it means even going back to school, like retaking that one class you didn't great at, I think it's absolutely worth it. And again, getting that feedback from people that turn down about, okay, what can I do to make myself better when I reapply to you know, another thing? Now, once into medical school, everything changed again because I thought I had been working hard. 
I had not been working with that <laughs> bad talking about porn. So the the path gets harder and harder and harder and harder. And that's why if you don't have the right like if you didn't go into this wanting to do it, you mm-hmm. know it. And you know, in medical school first they get tons of dropouts, you know, because it's it gets harder. Like the amount that you have to learn, that you have to sacrifice, your personal time sacrifice. I did not have a life in medical school. Mm-hmm. So people do, but I, I did not, you know, because you, you there's that much more to like learn and study and memorize, you know. I think my life was getting up, going to the gym, going to class, studying all afternoon. Going home, eating, going to bed, waking up. And like, that's what I did, mm-hmm. pretty much. Four years. Well, four years. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was the occasional, like, school party, or class, yada, yada, but I, yeah. I did not have any hobbies except for, what did I do? <laughs> Go maybe hiking some of the, but the thing is, you, you have to make lots of personal sacrifices, you know. Um, and then in medical school, then finding my new passion for neurosurgery, once I, once from, that was from the, I think the first year, like any extra time I had, like after exams and whatnot, I would sneak into the OR because I made mm-hmm. friends with the, with the surgery. So I would kind of like go and just hang out with them. Mm-hmm. I began to learn about what your life was about, mm-hmm. like what the patients were about and kind of like, and that I saw a few sort of back up and made me realize, wow, this is awesome. Like mm-hmm. people that kind of come in with like doing very poorly, having like bad headaches, having like could like bad like function and they have surgery to get better and that was like oh my god there's a meaning to this surgery that's when I kind of got a taste of like this is why people do this and because you can see this patient you can examine that you can see how they do before and after it became on a session almost so kind of wanted, I wanted to be there more and more I wanted to see more patients do more cases because it, it became real mm-hmm. and from that point I was and I want to be a neurosurgeon yeah you know and I even made more sacrifices I, and I knew that at that point I had learned that neuro was hard to get into, that it was difficult, it was repetitive. So I knew that if that was my goal, I had to sacrifice even more of my personal life, you know. I didn't even have friends in medical school, well, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I just, I buried myself into my studies and into being in a hospital. Mm-hmm. So I would say I, I, I lost a big chunk of my, my life. You know, and to me, that was my sacrifice. That was, that was the price to pay. Absolutely. Um, so I did that. And the interesting fact is that at that point, my, my parents were a little less supportive of me. <laughs> in medical school, were you remember? Yes, because, so I, how old was I? But I was getting to that point where a young woman is supposed to be kind of like, and married, you know, and all that. Well, you know, like, you know, in Cameroon, when you hit 24 years old and you're like not engaged or it's like you're getting to be old, it's like, oh, what's going on? What's wrong with her? Mm. So my parents were like, okay, you went to school, you're becoming a dude, you're going to be a doctor, and you know, like, what's going on? Like, we haven't seen anybody, like, like, you know, we have all these friends that have their children, you know, and I was like, actually want to be a neurosurgeon. And my parents were like, that's too much schooling. How many more years of school? That's eight more years of school. You're only too old to get married. Mm-hmm. Oh, we don't think you should do that. You know, X, Y, Z, do a different field of medicine. It was, that was a real weird, a weird shift in, yeah. in my parents and whatnot. Yeah. How did you deal with that? How did so, you? So I actually considered doing something else for a little while. You know, I, I considered, okay, what, what else could I do? Because neurosurgery, it is one of the hardest field in medicine. It, it is, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, I actually did some research before this interview. It says the top, one of the top three most difficult to get in to match into. And to practice, you know, it's a very difficult life. And at that point, I, I was realizing, I was seeing it in the that I was working with. So I, and the thing is, funny enough, I mean, I had worked hard partly for my, to my parents, you know, mm-hmm. so at that point, I was like, maybe they were right, you know, or maybe I should consider a life, maybe I should, you know. So I was like, okay, what else can I do that could bring me light? And I thought, maybe ophthalmology, you know, the eye is touch of the brain. I'll still be close to the brain, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did some rotation with ophthalmology, and I was just, it was just blah. Mm-hmm. It was just blah. And I was just like, I cannot do this myself. I cannot spend the rest of my life doing something other than what I love to do. I mean, how, how can you 
push and that passion. You know, I was just like, I, I just can't. Mm. I told my parents, I'm sorry, but this is my dream. You know, this is what I'm gonna do. And they cut me off. <laughs> Are you the lady? They did. So what was because that Because like? they wanted what was best for me, and in their mind, more schooling, more isolation. I mean, they were seeing me, my world get smaller. I mean, yeah. that, that is not probably, it doesn't seem healthy, right? You know, mm. but at that point, I had, a, I had two awesome mentors. I met two students I had been working with that were, that I had been secretly shadowing, like, throughout medical school. So by, by, the, by like, by my fourth year, I'd be hanging out with them for, like, four years, you know. I had done research with them. I had written papers with them. I was in the lab all the time. And they were like, they were like, you're, this is your dream, you know. They, they're like, we're going to help you when mm -hmm. we can. So they helped me, you know. They helped me through. They paid for my airplanes to my interviews. Wow. I mean, this is crazy, right? But the thing is, that's part of the part you can't achieve alone. Mm. So let me ask you this question. Why do you think they helped you? Because you obviously had to be displaying something or showing something to make them think like this, this is, this is somebody who can do something. I was at a hospital every time I had free time. Mm -hmm. You know how you kind of finish a test and you go out to party to celebrate? No, mm -hmm. I was at the hospital. Mm -hmm. I would finish my tests, my, like we would end up the year exam, then I would go to the hospital, sneaking mm -hmm. to see surgery. Mm -hmm. I was like, I was like a little rat, whatever. Yeah. Like, I was just falling down everywhere. Like, yeah. Wanting to learn, wanting to do more, mm -hmm. like asking to the project. I was, I was like showing them my interest, and I was really, for me, it was. I was, I was really. They could see that that that, that was living and breathing there, the surgery. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of like touched. Them. You know, listening to your stories, a couple of themes that keep coming back around that I keep noticing. As far as traces you have, one of them is perseverance. Yeah, I mean, you know, no taking over, never take no for an answer. Yeah, never. It's, it's never in question of can I, it's like, how do I? Absolutely. And another one is a positive attitude. It's like, even when you say some things that may be, you know, gut-reaching or hard for people, like, parents cut me off. It's like, you laugh, you like, it's like, it's like a light, you laugh about it. It's like, you, now I, now you know, <laughs> it's like, you can laugh now. <laughs> but it seems like you were able to like reframe these difficult, tough situations and it's not like, you know, oh, poor me. You kind of are still figuring out a way to like to make a positive spin on it so you can use that for, for your own positive. How, where does that thinking happen? It is a positive spin. Mm. I mean, you must know that the universe conspires for your happiness. Mm. You just have to look at it in the correct angle, mm. right? Because any difficulties thrown your way is meant to just make you stronger and mm. kind of think things differently. Yeah. That, that's that. Absolutely. Right? That is that is that. So that's wow. why I have to look at it. I didn't always think that way, but I've, I've learned to think that way. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. So let's kind of dig more into somebody because you like, I know you mentioned your parents like kind of having a about face after yes. you're already into your temper. I mean, they, they came around. They came around. I've got, of course. I'm sure they're. They're super happy. Everything worked out well. I got married eventually. So. You got married eventually. They're like, okay, we can we can relax. She's giving us some grand names. says, okay. Were there what other obstacles? What other challenges did you face along the way yeah. that you were able to overcome, and that most likely people who were following your footsteps would also face? And how did you overcome those obstacles and challenges? So I would say, so getting through the whole process, applying for residency, that is really hard. Getting into residency. I thought I had worked hard, but no, I had not worked hard enough because residency was even harder. Because residency is real. You're a doctor. You are now surrounded by other doctors. You are looking at patients who are supposed to be looking at you as their doctor. But maybe you don't look like your doctor, you know. What do you mean by so, that? So, I'm, I'm 40 years old, right? Do I look funny or something? No, you do that. Yeah. So I always had that problem of looking a little bit too young, you know? So I began wearing glasses mm. and I had a very stern haircut. So to... I, I noticed I had to make myself mm. appear a certain way. Mm. I had to talk a certain way. Mm. I had to behave a certain way. I realized that as a resident, as a, just even being a woman, 
forget about being black, but mm -hmm. being a woman neurosurgery resident, you have to work extra hard to be accounted for as well male partners. Mm -hmm. There's already an expectation of the get-go, right? Because you walk into the nurse and you're like, oh, nurse. Like, no, they automatically listen to your nurse. Say, no, I'm your, I'm your doctor, you know? And at first, they're kind of like, oh, you know? But so you have to be kinder, nicer, smarter. Mm. Like, you have to make them feel comfortable. You have to explain to them more, understand them more, mm. deliver them more. And then they look at you and say, you know what? Yes, you're my doctor. Mm. Yes, I trust you. Like you, you have to earn that. So you're almost, you have to audition. You have to earn it. You have to earn it. Mm. So it, it takes extra work. And I've seen things go different ways where some women or black people are put off by having to do that mm. work. You know, and it's almost like, well, why should I have to do that? Right. Well, guess what? It's too bad that you have to do that. Right. You know, you can be mad about it mm -hmm. and be upset. You know, or you can realize it and you can be like, you know what, I'll be better. Mm. I will be better. I will work harder. I will work smarter, you know, and I will. So I realized that. And so, yeah, so I work harder, smiled one, I played more, mm -hmm. you know, I, I delivered more, mm -hmm. you know, and little by little, I earned respect from my attendings, from my patients, you know, and I never took it personally because it's not. It's, it's a prejudice that's based on the society that you live in, you know. Those patients, those doctors, they don't, they don't mean to not be nice to you, but right. they don't expect it, right? Right. So not taking it personally is very, very cool, mm -hmm. you know. Almost expecting it mm -hmm. and even better, enjoying proving it. Mm -hmm. Be like, let me show you how awesome it. I am, you yeah. know. Let me just, like treat you extra good, mm. show you all the stuff that you made. Like, let me give you that extra time that my partner may not give you, mm. you know, so. Absolutely. So there was, there was lots of working harder. Again, lots of accepting that you have to work harder. Mm -hmm. But then it was also the reward of like being recognized of like, huh, you are actually are awesome. You're not actually working hard, you know, and so on and so forth. And the funny thing is that, so I have a German last name right now. Mm -hmm. I'm not a German lady. Like even now, right? I've been doing this here where I work for like nine years. And then a patient might come into my office. I walk in and will say, I was expecting you a big tall German lady. And I was like, yeah, and I'm not, you know? <laughs> so you, again, you can't take yourself too seriously into a situation. Mm -hmm. But what you do is you dummy, you take care of a person. Once, when you take care of somebody after you listen to them as your doctor, explain to them and take care of them, they will love you and they will respect you and, you know, they will, they will come back to you and they will send their family to them. Mm. So, yeah. That is, anyway. that is amazing. So let's dig in today. You just touched on so many great things. You talked about the idea of basically understanding that a lot of times the playing field may not be level, but not allowing that to sour your attitude or, you know, affect you in a negative way where you get fitter or too upset about it, where you still could go out and perform. Talk to me a little bit more about that, because I've experienced that myself and taking that and using it, kind of putting the chip on your shoulder, using it to kind of give you energy to go and overperform to, to show people what you can do. Talk to me about how you still maintain that, that positive outlook and you turn that you know, that, that what some people will call a, an obstacle or a challenge or a weight on your back. How did you turn that into fuel to be able to make you this amazing neurosurgeon? You have to love yourself first. Mm -hmm. You have to love yourself. You have to know that you're awesome. You have to know that you know what you're talking about, that you know what you're doing. Like the first thing is being confident in yourself. Now, it's very common for women in general, all blacks, to feel like imposters. Mm. Like you're in a room, you know, you look around, like that happens to me mm. a lot before where you look around and you're like, there's all these people, they do nothing like you, you know, mm. you know, and they, they look so smart and so confident. And suddenly you're like, oh my God, am I as smart as they are? Mm. Am I as good as they are? Mm. You probably know all that I do. Oh my God, I shouldn't be here. I don't really belong here. And you make yourself smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. 
in reality is that if you really think about it, you know, they may be doing the same way too. That maybe they're covering up their their lack of knowledge or confidence. And who knows what, you know what? I always I always try to think about it in a way that as I've as I have worked hard, as I have learned more, I've learned to know that I know my stuff. Now we're not meant to know everything, right? But when you work hard at something, you know, you deserve to be there. You deserve to be at the table. You deserve to be heard and to be in that room that you deserve to be there. So coming to the point where you will have that confidence of like, I haven't worked hard. I have learned just as much. I have learned more because I've applied myself even more. Mm-hmm. I deserve to be here, mm-hmm. you know. That is the first step to having that confidence. Mm. So that when somebody else questions your ability, you know, like, I know I'm great. Mm. You know, I, you can question me, but I, it, doesn't, it doesn't affect how to, I mean, let me show you how great I am. But you have to have that inner confidence. Mm-hmm. And if you put in the work, you know, to learn and build yourself, and you, you, you're, you're capable. Mm-hmm. You know, you're capable and you have to have that confidence. And so you feel like that confidence comes from the work. Like if you put in the work, you'll have the confidence that you can. If you dedicate yourself, you learn new material, you work hard, you do the stuff that are required, you know. And the thing is, in medicine, Everything is kind of like, kind of, I don't want to say graded, but your expectation for every level that you move up. You're supposed to pass your, any chemin on grade, you're supposed to pass your, your anatomy. Like everyone goes through the same step to get to where they are. Mm-hmm. So guess what? If you get to where you are, it's because you have achieved all those mm-hmm. expected steps. Mm-hmm. So you deserve to be there just as well as anybody else that's there. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that being a woman or being black, you know, you probably have had to work harder mm-hmm. than your colleagues. So you probably are smarter and harder working, mm-hmm. hence, in a sense, better. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should say this on TV, but yeah. So that should give you extra confidence that yes, you bet, you deserve to be there. You know, and you you're great. Absolutely. Anyway, so that's the way I look at. That's awesome. So, what advice? As we're starting to wrap up here, what advice? would you give to, we're gonna go in different segments. Mm-hmm. What advice, you say you're talking to a high schooler and they say, I wanna be a doctor or a neurosurgeon one day. What advice are you giving that high school, you know, that, that young boy, that young girl? What, what should they be focused on high school? So, high school, in my mind, I guess everything always came down to what is the next thing that you have to achieve to get to your ultimate goal? Mm-hmm. So from high school, the next thing to do is getting into college, mm-hmm. right? So good college that hopefully has a pre-med track, mm-hmm. you know, it's to like picking the right degree. Mm-hmm. Now, nowadays, med school isn't always like perfectly square that you have to do with this pre-med process. You can kind of do a variety of things. You can do some like art and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I would say go into a good college and then do your core materials, but also do things that you know you're good at mm-hmm. that are going to make your 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 resume look better. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I was a little I worked a little bit too hard for myself. I thought it made it a little bit easier on mm-hmm. me, I think. But so going into like if you are great at arts, you know, maybe you can take some of art classes so that your GPA mm-hmm. will look better mm-hmm. as opposed to maybe taking all hard classes mm-hmm. and then getting some C's at least. No, I would say take the core and then take the things that you're good at to make your, because your goal is to get the best GPA that you can get out Absolutely. of something school. Absolutely. Yeah. So now next step, what advice would you give to a college student now? They graduate high school, they're in college. What, what do they need to be focused on? What should they be doing? So in college, you're prepping yourself for getting into medical school. That is kind of like the goal. And the things we're looking at, they're looking at typically are going to be your GPA. Mm-hmm. And when you're looking at your volunteering experience, which is very, very key, volunteering, mm-hmm. it shows that you care for the community or not. Mm-hmm. And if it has to do with like working in a clinic somewhere or working with like, all those things are very, very important to hear. Um, it has to do with, I don't like, like research. So I would say like, if there are like TA positions available, if there are things like summer lab research available, mm-hmm. those are very, very important. And even if you need to, even taking an extra year off to do that research, you know, it's very important getting to night school. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then having good letters of recommendations is also very important. So having a good rapport with a few key people in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess one of the big things now is also shadowing. Mm-hmm. I have lots of students shadowing me right now in the hospital then from, like, from the undergrad, you know, mm-hmm. they come spend time with me. Mm-hmm. They get to see different surgeries. Mm-hmm. And I think that for a student to see a surgery early on and seeing what that liability surgery was about mm-hmm. can really give you that drive of like, oh my God, I really, really, really want this. Yeah. You know, so that night I'm going to stay up extra late so I can get my, my scores because I, I really want to do this and you will, you will have like an intrinsic drive to sacrifice to achieve that goal. Achieve, achieve seeing what that goal looks like. Okay. And so, okay, now college, they're in medical school. What is what advice medical you give? School is hard. Medical school is hard, and you will have to sacrifice. You'll you'll have to sacrifice. There will be personal gifts, and mm-hmm. it's it's just how it is. And even worse, I mean, residency will be even worse. But in medical school, again, it depends on what you want to do, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're looking for primary care type things, it may not be as challenging or as grueling. Mm-hmm. But still, though, it's it's still fairly hard if you're mm-hmm. looking at building a specialty. And if you're looking for levels like high-end specialties, you will have to sacrifice more time, you know, more time studying, more time volunteering, more time in the hospital, like more of all those things you need to beef up your resume when it comes time to applying, and also sometimes more time to research. But it's, again, lots of personal sacrifices, you know. Um, not a great time for one to start the family. Men get away with it. Yeah. yeah. Not women. Right. There's a thing about becoming a mother where you intrinsically your 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 interest intrinsically changes. Like mm. if it's sacrificing your your child time versus like a school time. Mm. Like uh, I mean, honestly, the kids flow in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? So again, depending on how old you are, you may have to delay. You know, like your your the family. Like I had my kids when I was like thirty. Mm-hmm. They're twins. So right. Efficiency. 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 <laughs> your life is about efficiency. get double but, done. It's like actually your, your undergrad days. Two semesters with but, two kids or what? But, but again, again, if you keep your eye on the price and realize that every step from the beginning, what do I have to do? And the thing is that you learn about what you have to do by asking the, the right person, right? So in in high school, you, know, you ask the, the person that you know in college. Ask the maximum that you know mm-hmm. in med school because those things always evolve. In med school, ask the like find the person you aspire to be mm. and ask them how do I become you? Mm. How like what do I have to do now to get to the step where you're at right now? People which are very willing to kind of like share and help and you know things like that. Awesome man, so much good. So as we wrap it up, what? Do you have any recommendations as far as books a young person may want to read? Just any resources? I graduated from college in 2004. That was a long time ago. Uh huh. I don't know if the books are still the same. Right. Well, and I'm not talking about like textbooks. I mean, maybe if it's like something to help build confidence or something that, or anything, just any resources that you think may be beneficial. Oh my God. I've read, I do lots of audio books. Audio books, okay. Because, like, it's just, you don't, you don't, you don't have to have time to read it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to be doing something else mm-hmm. and reading it. Mm-hmm. I have listened to lots of books about, like, self-awareness, mm-hmm. you know, with your, oh, there's a little Tony Robbins thing, by the way. Are you a Tony Robbins fan? I am a Tony Robbins fan, Absolutely. Now, I don't aspire to all of his teachings, right. but that's something I did that I was also going to make very like eye-opening. Mm. But I would say lots of like being open to learning about how your brain works, how your mind works, how the world works, and how to make that works better for you. But I don't have a, I don't have one particular book that I would. No problem. Hey, that was. I've read. It's too many. Yeah. It's too many. Too many out there. Absolutely. So. No, that was great. So yeah, I want to thank you. Thank you, thank you for taking time to share so much wisdom. I guess the last question I have for you is, would you be willing to mentor or coach somebody who reached out and wanted to follow in your footsteps? Yes. Awesome, awesome. So is there is there a best way to get in contact with you? Is there an email? Or what would be the best way for a young so, person to want to? I don't read my email. You don't read your emails? That, 
Because you're a neurosurgeon. You don't have time to read emails. But so, first of all, I, I don't have time to randomly mentor somebody who thinks that maybe, right, you right. know, they may want to, you know. But I think I'm very willing to mentor and assist a person who is driven, you know, who wants to achieve that. Absolutely. And who has given themselves no other option. Absolutely. That person I would make the time for. Absolutely. And you know, Absolutely. If you are that person, reach out to me and then I'll filter it and I'll get the message to Sonia. Sonia, thank you for taking the time to, to, to share your wisdom here. I'll show your receipts. We really appreciate it. I believe that this interview is going to be impactful to some young person. You've inspired me and I know you've inspired some of our viewers as well. So thank you for sharing your time. Thank you for having me. No problem.